Leaders are readers. After interviewing over 300 experts on my podcast, I've compiled the top 30 books written by Mindset Advantage guests. You can download the list and listen to the episodes where I interview the authors at djhillier.com slash 30 books. You can also head over to my Instagram bio to download the free ebook right now. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast, a show dedicated to insightful conversations in a world full of sound bites. Hosted by fitness coach, performance optimization coach, and national speaker, DJ Hilliard. These podcasts are designed to help you attack the gap from where you are now to where you want to be. The episodes take a deep dive into leadership, mindset, and fitness. Follow the show on Instagram at Mindset Advantage Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 326 of the Mindset Advantage Podcast. This week, I'm thrilled to chat with Barry Michaels. Barry is a psychotherapist who has been seeing clients since 1986. Barry is also the co-author of New York Times bestselling book, The Tools, five tools to help you find courage, creativity, and willpower and inspire you to live life in forward motion. Since writing this life-changing book, Barry has been featured on Dr. Oz, Charlie Rose, and ABC's Nightline. I was first introduced to Barry's work through a Netflix documentary that I watched uh, a couple months ago called Stuts. And the show is an inside look at Barry's business partner, Phil Stutz, who works with Jonah Hill and has been seeing him as a client for, I think, upwards of like 10 or 15 years. It was an inside look at what their conversations look like and how their uh, Phil and Barry's a view on therapy is just a little bit different than the traditional idea of therapy. So after watching that, I bought the book and I reached out and was so happy to hear that Barry was uh, willing to come on the show and talk about the tools and kind of his thoughts on not only the show, but also just where therapy is in today's world and how we can improve upon it. So some of the topics we got into were first the inspiration of this best-selling book. When a book like this hits around the world the way it did, I'm always so curious to hear about what went into it. Why did you choose to put what you choose chose to put into the book? I just wanted an inside look at the tools and and the book itself because I thought it was so good. After that, we talked about why Barry and Phil disagree with traditional therapy. Then we dove into the five tools. And I would say we definitely did like a surface level on all five tools. You can definitely go deeper. I highly encourage you to do that um, by getting the book and just kind of researching it on YouTube because it is different, uh, but it is super impactful. After that, we talked about how to gain self-confidence, how to feel gratitude, and how it's different than just writing down what you're grateful for. And then we close down by talking about the importance of getting outside of your comfort zone. Remember, for those of you that are interested, the Mindset Advantage podcast is now on YouTube. We have a bunch of episodes that are uploaded. So if you want to watch uh, the episode of this interview at the conveniency of your own home, head over to YouTube and either type in the Mindset Advantage podcast or DJ Hillier, and you'll be directed into our library of podcasts. All right. Without further ado, let's get to this awesome episode with Barry Michaels. Let's go. The Mindset Advantage podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. 
Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. Rob Wolf, founder of Element, is also a biochemist, New York Times bestseller, and previous guest on this podcast, and is someone I trust dearly. Element is currently being used by the highest performers all over the world, including athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, Special Forces, and the Olympics. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the Mindset Advantage podcast, you can receive a free sample pack by using the link www.drinkelement.com slash mindset advantage. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com slash mindset advantage. Go get yours now. Barry Michaels, welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much, DJ. It's, it's great to be here. I got to read your legendary book, The Tools, Five Tools to Help You Find Courage, Creativity, and Willpower and Inspire You to Live Life in Forward Motion. This book, I read a lot of books, as you can see from behind me, Barry. This book is phenomenal. You and Phil absolutely crushed it. There are so many great tools in here, little one-liners and quotes. Uh, This is one that anybody listening, if you're looking for your next book, I highly recommend The Tools. First, Barry, I want to start with what brought the tools to light? How did this how did this great book come out? Why why then and and why was it so important to you and Phil both? I'd love to hear the story. Sure. You know, I met Phil in I think 1984, somewhere around there. Um, and I started to work with him and he started referring me patient after patient. I, he supervised me and taught me all of this stuff that he had come up with. And you know, the more I got into it and the more I used it with my patients and saw the incredible effectiveness of it, the more I started to ask him, like, why aren't you writing a book about this? Like, what what's going on with you? And I never really got a coherent answer to that question. I think part of it is that, you know, he has some medical problems that impair him and make it very difficult for him to concentrate and, you know, and focus on something as long as a book, you know, takes to write. And so I finally just said to him, look, either we write this book together or I'm writing it on my own kind of thing. I think that's what finally got to him and he agreed to write it. And it was a labor of love from the very beginning. I mean, it, it just was material that we both cherish. And you know how there's, you can read a book and you can enjoy it and then you forget about it and it's on the trash heap. And then there are certain things that you read that just stay with you and you apply them for the rest of your life and you remember quotes from them and stuff like that. That was the way we felt about the material that went into the tools. And, you know, there are a lot of different tools. We just tried to figure out what were the four or five most effective and most widely applicable. And we chose those to go into the, to go into the book. 
Yeah, you did such a great job. You guys have talked openly about this idea of classic, maybe classic's not the right word, but we'll just put it there for now, classic therapy and how you, you guys really disagreed with where the field was headed. And that kind of spawned this book too. Talk to me a little bit about what was the disagreement that you and Phil have towards uh, classic uh, therapy? Sure. Um, it's so much better than what I'm about to describe. But when I was coming up as a young therapist, and certainly Phil, when he was um, the prevailing theory of psychotherapy was a patient comes to the therapist with a problem and the therapist does not ever offer any solutions or anything for the patient to do. They just try to trace the problem back to its origins in the patient's family or in, it, in, in the patient's early life. And the premise of that, it's not spoken, but the unspoken premise is that if you somehow are able to figure out why the problem developed, poof, that will get rid of the problem. Now, that's just a silly proposition as far as I'm concerned. Knowing why something developed doesn't get rid of it. It just gives you understanding. And I'm not against understanding, but what we felt impatient with was the patient is spending all of this time exploring their past, what their mother did, what their father did, et cetera, et cetera. And even if it was terrible what their mother or father did, it's not really getting them any closer to solving the problem, which is what we feel the therapist is, is tasked with. So what we wanted to do was come up with actionable tools that regardless of your past, work in the present to overcome the problem. Now, again, our supervisors, when we were coming up as therapists, would have said that's superficial, you, <laughs> you know, you're not really getting to the heart of the problem, et cetera, et cetera. And our, basically our response was, who cares? If the problem gets solved, the patient is happy, they've, you've earned your money. If the problem is not solved and all you're doing is exploring the past, as far as I'm concerned, you're not earning your money. And I can say, admittedly, Barry, I've been to therapy several times, and uh, sometimes I just want to sit there and say, "Tell me what to do. Give me some exactly. advice. Can I can I get exactly. some advice on what to do here?" As a as a total third party or a second party, you have no idea kind of who I am, who I'm talking about. What's just your general advice? Because if I go to my my significant other or my parents, everybody has a small bit of bias, whether we want to believe it or not. There's a small bit of bias that they're going to give advice on versus sometimes I just want a third party to tell me, hey, what do you, what do you think about this? I would love to hear from your professional opinion. Give me some advice. Is that kind of what you're talking about? A thousand percent. That's what we're talking about. I mean, I would, at this point in my career, if a patient doesn't get my advice within the first 15 or 20 minutes, I, I, I think I should be fired because it's expensive and it's time consuming and the patient is really committing to it and needs a commitment from you, the therapist. And the commitment is you may not be right about what to do, but at least give them something to do so that they can then come back the next time and say, this worked, that didn't work, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can refine the solutions. But therapy that doesn't include solutions to me is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in this idea of staying curious, staying curious a little bit longer, asking questions. So I'm, I'm going to guess though, there's, there's this, this kind of dichotomy where we have, you know, we want to give advice, but I think it's also important for coaches, a lot of coaches listening, coaches, therapists, parents to be able to ask the questions before we start giving advice. So I'm going to exactly. guess, and I'm just going to presume in your, in your uh, practice that the first five seconds is not advice. I'm still asking questions to get there. And perhaps maybe a, a, one of the last questions before you give advice is, 
can I give you some advice? Because maybe, maybe there's times, Barry, when you sit across from somebody and they don't want advice. They just want to be heard. Just listen to me. Can you talk yes. to me a little bit about, sometimes we want to just dive into advice as coaches, parents, and therapists, yes. but sometimes that's not the first step. Can you open that bucket a little bit? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's such an important point. Frankly, usually the first step in therapy for, for me as the therapist is to tell the person to close their eyes and imagine themselves in the situation that's problematic for them. Because what I want to do is I want to recreate the feelings right here in the room, even though they're in the therapy room, they're not out there in the situation. And very often feelings come up and they're able to label and name the feelings in a way that they aren't in the outside world because things are just moving too quickly and they're just responding, you know? So to me, the work does not begin with solutions. It begins with a deeper, I guess I would use the word imaginal, meaning you're using the imagination to recreate the problem so that we can, so that I can get a taste for how the person feels when the problem is occurring and what conflicts is it is it triggering in them and what urges do they have and you know what what what's going on deep deep inside of them human i mean human beings are so complex just so complex and there's so much that goes on inside of them that yes they absolutely need solutions but yes they also need a um a prior sort of exploration of the deep state that the person gets into because unless you deal with that state no solution you give is going to do any good they're not going to be able to do the solution i love the idea of that imagination first because i think sometimes what happens is we get to our therapy session and they you know you get asked how's everything going everything's going great right now sitting here right now right. i'm having a good time i woke up everything's good uh, so what you're doing, it's almost like this visualization, take me to when things aren't so good, exactly. right? Take me to that time, not only for you as the therapist, Barry, but also for them to re-experience, if I'm following you correctly, re-experience some of those feelings so they can better articulate them to you. And then you can get to the solution because right now we're sitting here having coffee. It's Sunday or, you know, Thursday morning, we're having a good time, but we forget how hurt we may feel even the night before. And I think what you said is, is really important. Very often that imaginal experience is helpful to the patient as well because it gives them an opportunity not under pressure they're not in the situation but it gives them an opportunity with that doesn't have pressure in it to really think about what do i feel in that situation why is it so problematic for me what are the feelings that it brings up does it remind me of anything in my past you know et cetera, et cetera. without that in-depth exploration any solutions you give, and I'm very solution oriented, but any solution I give is going to be shallow. It's not really going to take into account the, the depth. The, I mean, human beings are so complex. You know, it's not going to take into account that com complexity. And I want my solutions to take into account that, that complexity. Otherwise, they're not going to work. I love that you guys use the word, obviously, the, the title of, of the tools and that they are tools. And I, I see this kind of uh, picture of, you know, a, a toolbox and you have a bunch that you can kind of choose from. But in order to uh, complete a project, you can't just grab the tool. You actually have to put it to use. And so the quote that comes up often in your guys' uh, content is that real change requires you to change your behavior, not just your attitude. 
So to me, if we're going to pick apart this analogy, your attitude is just maybe grabbing the tool, picking up the hammer. But then that the change happens when you start hammering the nail and you start a- a changing an action and that that's what follows. And I love that as a mental performance coach, I always talk about, I, I like this quote of uh, your thoughts determine what you want, but your actions determine what you get. So we might think we want all these things and we might think we want to write a book. We might think we want to do all these great but until we start putting action in, nothing really changes. And we get rewarded right. by the action that we take. So, Bear, I'd love for right. you to open that up a little bit of what's the difference between not just your attitude, but also change your behavior using the tool as action before we kind of dive into the five. Yeah, it's that's a really important question because it broadens out the definition of action. In other words, what what everybody wants is to be able to take action in the outside world and have it be effective, you know, what, whatever it is. Um, but what I like to start with is action in the inner world, which sounds strange, but very often what I have people do is imagine themselves in the difficult situation and in their imagination, build up the courage and usually often I'll give them a tool to, to help them do that. And then in their imagination, visualize taking the action. It's not just a rehearsal of the action. It's a rehearsal of the emotions that that they're not used to being able to control. So instead of allowing yourself to be seized with fear, you're going to use this tool. It's going to empower you and give you courage. And then you're going to be able to take action. And if you practice that over and over and over again in your imagination without taking action at all, then when it comes time to take action, it'll actually feel natural to you. It won't feel unnatural. It won't feel like you're forcing yourself to. It won't feel, you know, dystonic to your ego, to who you are, you know, kind of thing. It'll feel like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now, which is that that's that's one of the keys to change is too many people try to just force the change when it doesn't really reflect any inner change. So I want to I want to make inner changes so that then when they change something they do in the outside world, it actually feels like, oh, that's the culmination of all that work we did on my insides. Does that so make work, sense? You? Yeah, totally. I'm, I want to put in a specific example. So I work with a lot of uh, athletes on the mental game, being a mental performance coach and a team consultant. And one of the tools that I teach is visualization. And I hear some yeah. kind of similar language with visualization. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, uh, Barry, what would you say? Is it a tool? How would you, how would you approach somebody who, uh, let's just pull something out, somebody who's, I'm not very confident all right. I'm, I'm not very confident when I'm on the court or I get really nervous when I step up to the free throw line because I know all eyes are on me. Take one of these examples. Walk me through what that would look like working with an athlete who is dealing with lack of confidence within a game. What, what are some things? What are some tools? Is it visualization? Is it something else? What would you do there? I hope you're not sorry you asked me this because it's a long answer, but it's the... um the idea of confidence is very complex and it has a lot to do with something called the human shadow. The shadow is, believe it or not, an alter ego, a, a sort of a whole separate being living inside of us. And it's the part of us that we feel ashamed of. It's the part of us we feel insecure about. You know, obvious examples if you grow up overweight, you've lost the weight now, but you still have this overweight shadow dogging you and making you feel like you're unattractive to women or men or, you know, whatever it is, that the problem of confidence needs to be solved in concert with the shadow. 
Okay. Now, specifically to use that example, what I would have the person do is visualize their shadow, overweight, acne, you know, sort of a social outcast, whatever. And I would have the person establish a relationship with the shadow. Now, I know this sounds weird. You're talking to a part of yourself and you don't expect it to talk back. But weirdly enough, it does talk back. And if you do it enough times, you actually begin to win the shadow over. It becomes your ally. And then you can walk into a situation arm in arm with your shadow and feel absolutely and utterly confident. See, the problem with confidence is that most people try to achieve it without dealing with the shadow. And they still feel this, I don't know how to put it into words, but they still feel dogged by this shadowy, bad feeling inside of themselves. And they try as hard as they can to overcome it or to hide it or whatever, but it's still there, you know, pulling at them, you know, kind of thing. Once you can really really make a strong relationship with your shadow, then you can walk into these situations and actually feel utterly and completely confident. And it's, a, it's an amazing feeling. For many people, it's like the first time they've ever felt that feeling. Let me ask you, this is great. What's, a, what's, a, what's kind of the first step for that? I mean, we're talking about what I'm hearing is a lot of self-awareness and maybe it's having yeah. a conversation with a therapist, but what are some steps to get in touch with your shadow? I think for some people, they're like, oh my gosh, that could be a really yeah. daunting task. What is that? No, what's it's the easy. Tool? What's the let, tool? Let me, do you mind if I work on you? Is sure. Guinea pig? Okay. Sure. Close, totally. close your, just close your eyes and just go back to any time in your life where you felt like an outcast, uh, like you felt really insecure, like you didn't belong, where you felt bad about yourself. It doesn't have to be a social situation, but if it can be, that's even better because usually that brings out the shadow. And it's often a situation where you feel like other people can see that you're insecure, you're not good at something, you know, they, they sort of see through you and see your shadow. And when you have that situation, just let me know. Yeah, it kind of brings me back to, I remember walking in my first university, my first college class, it was a really big auditorium. And there's a lot of people in there, one of those like really big classroom type deals. And it was very, it was daunting. I remember yeah. being I don't know if I, I don't know if I belong here. I, I all my classes in high school are you know twenty five people. There's probably three hundred people in this room. I, I remember uh, just kind of a, that's just the first thing that came to my mind was a gut check of are you are you able to do this? Are you ready for this? What what if they call on you? Or I, I remember it was that's a, beautiful. It was either philosophy or theology class and something I wasn't familiar with, so I, would, I was already a little nervous going into it. Is that is that is that a good enough answer? That's beautiful. That's perfect. Okay. Close your eyes again. Mm -hmm. And just visualize the part of you that you feel doesn't belong there. So it's awkward, it's tentative, it's insecure. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. You want to tell me what it looks like? I basically just see myself. I see myself back sitting in that. I was kind of in the back row. I see mm -hmm. myself sitting there, uh, looking around, 
uh, feeling small. <laughs> mm-hmm, perfect. Okay, now look into his eyes. Close your eyes again and look, look into his eyes. And you can do this verbally out loud or you can do it silently, however, whatever's most comfortable for you. But what I want you to do is send the most intense love that you can to him. Declare your loyalty to him. Like we're in this together. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to let you alone. And as you express that that confidence and that loyalty to him, see if it has any effect on him. Yes, yeah. I see him smiling. I also feel a little bit emotion myself. Uh, like I'm, yeah. my body's tingling a little bit. I, I feel a little bit emotional with tears in my eyes a little bit. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's very common because this is a part of us that has just been trying to do it on its own for our entire lives, and it's it's hard. It's lonely, and just that declaration of love and loyalty is like oh thank god you know finally now obviously you'd have to do that a lot you know like once a day or three times a day and i i would instruct you to do it on your own but also to do it to get get good at it so you can actually do it in front of people like i talk to my shadow before every interview i give and i sometimes talk to it during the interview particularly when i feel like i'm blowing it you know, just, just to reassure him, hey, it doesn't matter. If we blow it, we blow it, but I love you. We're together in this, you know, kind of thing. You, you can imagine that if you were that avid about, about pursuing a relationship with the shadow, those feelings are going to disappear and they're going to be replaced by a feeling of, it sounds weird to say this, but a feeling of togetherness, like we're in this together and nothing but nobody can split us apart. And that's really, at the end of the day, what confidence is, is it's this bone-deep conviction that my shadow and I are unbreakable. The two of us are together forever. Another phrase that keeps coming to my mind going through this exercise is, is telling that individual, you know, 12 years ago, it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. And I ask a lot of my times at the end of my podcast, Barry, I ask them what I call the million dollar question. What do you know now that you wish you knew 20 years ago? And one of the most common answers I get is, I wish I could tell that my younger self, it's all going to work out, buddy. It's all going to work out. And there's something so comforting in hearing, hearing somebody say that. I think, you know, hearing your parents say that to you as a child and you saying that to your kid, it's a very, it's a very powerful statement in it's all going to work everything is going to work out. It's going to be fine in the long run. It might not seem like it right now. Is that a phrase that you would associate with this exercise? Absolutely. Absolutely. The only amendment I would make to it is I try not to put too much emphasis on how the external circumstances go, because the truth is you never know. And there is going to be adversity in your life, regardless of how much you hope that there isn't. So it's not that I'm opposed to saying that, but I would also, but I always also say to the shadow, it doesn't fucking matter what happens. 
you and I are together. That's what's unbreakable, you know, kind of thing. So that no matter what we have to go through, we have each other, period. That's the, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it's fascinating to me, Barry, because I think a lot of people, I think the obvious is I don't want to, I don't want to look in my shadow. I don't want to look at the hardest part of my life. I don't want to look at the kid who is fat and overweight. I don't want to look at the kid who didn't have any friends. Why would I? So, so answer this one for me, because this is probably the myth I'm hearing people as they're driving. Barry, why the hell would I go back to the worst part of my life? Why wouldn't I go back? Why wouldn't I? We talk about visualization. Why wouldn't I visualize the best parts of my life? Isn't that going to give me confidence if I look back at my highlight reel versus looking back at my low light reel? You, you can do both. You can visualize the highlight reel. I have no objection to that. But what I do know for sure, I've seen tens of thousands of patients, is that if you don't deal with the dark side, it will get larger. It really does have a life of its own. And if you refuse to pay attention to it, what it says is, okay, dude, <laughs> you're going to have to deal with me one way or the other. At least you, if you deal with me directly, we can deal with, with each other directly. If you don't deal with me directly, I'm just going to fuck up your life. You know, I'm just going to take over and make you feel miserable. I'm just going to you know, flood you with those feelings of insecurity, and they're not going to go away. If you don't deal with them, it might be a dumb question, but is there a, is there an age that you would start this with? I'm just curious because working a lot with kids, high school kids, is this something that you would introduce at that level? Is there an age that works a little bit better? Is there, do you frame it differently if it's a different age? Just curious. <laughs> I, I started working with my kids when they were in their early teens. Um, and I, I really felt like I probably could have started earlier. Now you have to do a, a sort of light version of it. It can't be, you know, like you would do with an adult. But I actually found that my kids loved the feeling, the sense that there was someone inside of them that they could talk to and collaborate with and make things better with. I agree. Um, so I don't no, I don't, I don't think there is. I mean, there's an age where your kids just won't understand, you know, and obviously then it's, then it's too soon. Um, but I, you, I, I'm just, I'm always amazed at how kids, if anything, have a deeper and better imagination for these things <laughs> than adults do, because they live with these archetypes all day long, you know? So you're really just giving them a vocabulary for dealing with them. I love it. That's awesome, man. I, I, I should have known that we were going to go deep today talking to one of the world's best therapists, but I, I guess I wasn't <laughs> totally prepared for that. That, But thank you for taking me a little bit outside my comfort zone. And that's what I want to get into next. You talk about uh, the five tools. And the first one is my favorite one. It's the reversal of desire. And we talk about, you talk just about that, the comfort zone. And this idea that the comfort zone is is supposed to keep your life safe. But what it really does is it keeps your life small. We have a lot of listeners that do CrossFit and we like to push ourselves to the edge of our abilities physically. So we, we kind of jam on this idea of getting out of our comfort zone. But I think some of us, we do it, but we're not necessarily sure why we do it or why it's important or what happens if we don't. Um, so talk to me a little about reversal of desire. I have some notes here. Just open, open the door. We can kind of dive in wherever you want to go. Yeah. Look, it's human nature to avoid pain. Nobody likes pain. Nobody wants to go into pain. 
And by the way, I'm talking about pain in the broadest sense of the word. It can be reading a new book. It can be going up to uh, a, a woman that you're attracted to, you know, that you're a little scared of. It can be applying for a job. It doesn't really matter what the pain is. Pain is kind of a multi-purpose destroyer of human of human life because the way we respond to pain is we pull back and we avoid whatever it is that's causing us pain. That's just visceral. It's built into human nature, but unfortunately, it keeps us from it keeps us from living a full life. I mean, you can't live the life that you're meant to live unless you're willing to go through pain because there's always a little bit of pain associated with anything, you know? So, I mean, there's a little bit of pain, by the way, coming on a podcast, because I don't know what you're going to ask me. And I don't know but if I know the answers, you know, whatever. And I had to use the reversal of desire to get my, you know, to get myself in the right state to do it. Um, so we, we avoid pain. That's the principle here. Now the reversal of desire what the reversal of desire does is it gets you to face pain and go through it rather than avoid it. It's called the reversal of desire because everyone's desire is to avoid pain. And we're reversing that. We're saying, I want pain. Now, I have to immediately issue a caveat because everybody asks this question, what are you which, turning us into masochists? No, we don't mean liking pain in that sense of, of the word. What we're saying is that unless you find a way of moving into pain of sort of wanting it you know in a certain way you're never going to overcome it and it's going to limit your life and that's that's what the reversal of desire is based on it's the based on the idea that for most people the limiting factor in their lives is not environmental it's actually internal it's that internal mechanism that says oh that looks painful i don't want to do it you know kind of thing and what the reversal of desire does is it says yes i do i want to do it and I want the pain associated with it. Does that make you a masochist? No, it just makes you an effective human being. It makes you able to overcome the natural resistance we have to all action. So re reading the book, I think there's an aha moment for me, key distinction. I want the listeners to pick up on this and see if you can dive a little bit deeper. There's a difference here. It's, it's something I wrote down was not just going through adversity, but being glad that it's here. The quote from the book says, inner strength comes only to those who move forward in the face of adversity. Adversity doesn't make you stronger. Moving forward in the face of adversity does. To me, this is, very, this is a very key distinction. Can you open that? I like that. That's well written. <laughs> uh, that's good, right? Yeah. Who wrote that? Who wrote that? Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not, um, it's not what you said. It's not adversity that makes you stronger. It's that something shifts inside of you and you embrace the adversity. And that's what makes you stronger. And it makes you stronger because it doesn't just apply to this hardship that you're facing. It says life has adversity in it. And I want the adversity just as much as I want the good stuff that's going to that's gonna come my way. Why do I want it? I want it because it's part of life. And if I start bifurcating out anything that is adverse to me, I'm really going to miss out on a lot. You know, child rearing is painful. It's also the most rewarding experience I've ever had in my life, but it's painful. Don't kid yourself, you know? So, so you, you don't want to stop yourself from doing things because they're painful. If you do, you won't do anything. 
And what the reversal of desire is, is it embraces the pain so that you can expand your horizons and do more. I got this written down in the book too, on page 41. It says, you can remember each step by the phrases that go with it. One, bring it on. Two, I love pain. Three, pain sets me free. Just saying these three phrases will help you. Can you talk about those three phrases? Yeah. Yeah. Bring it on means when, whenever we have pain to face, we're going to move toward it. And sometimes that's going to take the form of physical motion, like, like moving toward a fight or moving toward a, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, sometimes it's not going to take a physical form. It's just an attitudinal form. Moving toward pain means that I adjust what's going on inside of me, usually from, oh God, I don't want to do this to yes, I do. Even though I don't, I do. I do because it's adversity and I know that adversity helps me, you know, kind of thing. And then what was the second one? I love pain. I love pain. Yeah. Now this gets misunderstood by a lot of people. They think we're trying to teach them to be masochists. No, we're not talking about loving pain in that sense. Interestingly enough, what a masochist does, you know, masochist is somebody who actually does love pain. A masochist uses pain and the experience of pain, like you know, sexual, like some sort of sexual game where you're whipped or hurt in some way, they use that to stop moving forward. They actually get stuck in it. So they're not actually loving pain in the, in the sense that we want them to love pain, which is to embrace it and move through it. And then pain sets you free means that there comes a point where you've endorsed pain and embraced pain, where you move through it And there's a feeling, it's so hard to describe, but there's a feeling of mastery, just a feeling of like, I did that. And the it I did wasn't the particular activity. It was that I took something in the universe that was adverse to me and I turned it into an advantage, into something good, something positive for me. You're speaking my language, and I know you quote Viktor Frankl in his in his great book *Man's Search for Meaning*. How there's this there's this spot of event versus response, and there's this blank little area in between both of those where we can choose how we want to respond. I wear a bracelet very on my wrist that says E plus R equals O, and I teach my kids this understanding of my athletes that the events are out of our control, but our R is how we either choose to respond to the events or react. To events reactionary things very quick i you know it's it's very impulsive respond it's more calculated i have these phrases laid out that you said this is what i can say in return and that's going to influence the o of the outcome but ultimately the e and the o are out of our control the only thing we can control is how we respond to the events or respond to the adversity Jocko Willick is a, a Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL, and he has such a, a, an amazing video. I don't know if you've seen it before. It has millions and millions of views, but his response when adversity comes his way, his word or his phrase is good. So anytime something happens that right. comes up and everybody's complaining, he goes, good. There's, there's yeah. something that's good that's going to come out of this. There's yeah. another story that I, that by I like way, to tell. By the way, oh, yeah, that's, that's a form of the reversal of desire. It's very quick. It's very down. It's very easy. It's just good good. What you're doing is endorsing something that's happening anyway, whether you like it or not. And the people who say, good, I want this to life, forget about the reversal of desire. They're going to live much fuller lives 
because they're endorsing reality rather than rejecting it, choosing to ignore it, trying to make it better, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a different, I mean, to me, man, that's a different level. If you can get to that point, you're, you're a special human being. When you start looking for the adversity and you know, man, on the other side of this, there's going to be some really great stuff. There's a story, I have, I have a CrossFit background. And a few years ago, they had the CrossFit Games out in, uh, in California at this ranch. And there's only five athletes there. And they had this event that was a trail run. They had to go through the woods and it was, it was daunting. But basically, the, the Dave Castro, the guy that was running the event said, uh, you're going to start here. I'm going to meet you at the finish line. It's going to take you an hour, hour and a half to get there. And so they go through 7K up and down these mountains. They're crawling, they're running, they're jogging, they're walking, they're walking backwards. It's, it's, it's a tough task. And by the time that the, they get to the finish line, Dave Castro, who makes all the rules for the CrossFit Games, he's standing there. And when they get to the finish line, he goes, nice job, and points and goes, now do it again and return. I'll meet you at the start line. They didn't know this, right? Wow. And so you get to see, there's this video, you get to watch where these athletes come in. One of the athletes came in and flipped off Dave Castro. He's like, you got to be effing kidding me, right? Other ones come in and they roll their eyes. And there's one athlete named Katrin Davis daughter who comes in. She won the CrossFit Games in 2015. And she comes in, she's middle of the pack, and she comes in and hears the news. And her first reaction is a smile. And it was like, in me watching this seven years ago, eight years ago, I was like, what the hell? That, that, you just, and so she smiled. She turned around. She was middle of the pack barrier. And I can't even make this up. She finishes first place. And afterwards, right. they talked to her about, you know, what, what was the deal? You know what? You, you smiled at the midway point. Everybody else was pissed because they had to double the work that they just did. And she said very similar to what you guys wrote in your book. I love a little bit of adversity. And I was, I was in a little bit, I was kind of expecting it. And once it came, I've been preparing for this. I've been preparing for adversity. And I took it with a smile and the results came with the way she wanted to. But it was this great story of you get to choose how you respond and it directly affects the O, the outcome. Yeah. By the way, you have a deeper understanding of this than most people do, because what you're alluding to is the idea that saying, saying yes is good and it's effective just from a personal point of view, because it means you can go right into adversity rather than you know talking about it endlessly and debating with yourself etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's also something deeper involved here which is that when you say yes to adversity you're saying yes to something much greater and higher than you i don't care whether you call it god or higher forces or higher power or whatever you call it but it is the author of all events mm. Everything that happens is authored by this greater power. And when you say yes to it over and over and over again in your life, you start to actually get a feeling that you're living in an intelligent universe, that you're living in a universe where events are not merely random and are not you know, designed to persecute you, but they're actually designed for you to strengthen you, you know, kind of thing. And that's not just an intellectual uh framing of the event it's a deep feeling that you start to get about life and that's a wonderful feeling it meets it it means oh i'm living in an intelligent universe like this everything makes sense so well said i love it my favorite quote in this book i think parlays to exactly what you just said this is my favorite quote and i put it on my instagram today reading it just gives me goosebumps it says this quote what if every bad thing that's ever happened to you including every problem you've ever had 
was there in your life to get you in touch with the abilities you never knew you had. I got to say it one more time. What if every bad thing that's ever happened to you, including every problem you've ever had, was there in your life to get you in touch with the abilities you never knew you had? That's incredible. Yeah. 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 It's a mic yeah. drop one right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, let's go, let's go into the next uh, one here is, is active love. So we talked about in that exercise there, we talked about sending love to the previous self, me in college. And that, that was easy. That was easy to do because it was me and I could see myself and I love, I love who I am, but you talked about active love. You got to walk this one, walk me through this one, man. Cause we're talking about sending active love to people that you don't really enjoy and people that bug the shit out of you. Walk me through, how do you do that? Why do you do that? And, and let's open up what active love looks like as one of the tools. Yeah. I think the why is usually the hardest for people to swallow. You know, when we're filled with resentment because somebody's done something, you know, really legitimately bad, to, you know, to us, it's everybody's first question is, why should I send them love? I hate them, you know, kind of thing. And the answer to that question is you should send them love so that you're not poisoned with hatred and resentment. It's for your sake. It's not for their sake. Mm. So that clears up some of the misconception. It's like, oh, okay, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it because I don't want to spend the rest of this week cogitating and obsessing about how they did what they did and going over and over, which is usually what people do. I mean, I can't spend can't tell you how many nights I've spent all night long, just angry at somebody and going over what they said to me and what I should have said to them and you know, just et cetera, et cetera. So active love is designed to allow you to let go of all of that and move on. You're going to move on at some point anyway. You're not going to hate this person for the rest of your life, at least not in an active way. So why not do it sooner rather than later? If you don't, you're just sort of poisoning your insides for as long as you hold on to the to the hatred. Now, what was the quote, second half of the question? I was curious on does this do you find more success in this through words or is it more of an internal? Is it a visualization? Is it you? You know, you had me send love to that to that previous me because I can't talk to that previous me. Is it the same thing, or is it like are you telling people, Barry, hey? Send a text to this person or say, be not, is it something like that? What, what are your thoughts no. if the person's live and in front of us? No, usually I tell them don't communicate with the other person at least for a while so that we can use active love and um, let go of all of your resentment toward them. And then if you decide you want to communicate with them, you can, but you'll be communicating from a much more neutral place. See, if you communicate with the person before you use active love and before you let go of the resentment, I don't care how skilled you are, they're going to know that you're still angry at them. And what's most likely to happen, what always happens is the other person is going to get on their high horse and they're going to feel resentful of you. How dare you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're just in one of these escalating cycles where they're saying things that inflame you and you're saying things that inflame them. And it's like, you know, that's like almost like the state of the world now, you know, it's just happening everywhere. So no, we, the act of love is a tool to be used over and over and over again on yourself. And then when you finally feel like, okay, I'm good. 
then you can communicate with them if you feel like you know it's appropriate to but barry this person this person has run over me for years and they're toxic and i i can't find anything i like about them how can i send love to somebody that i can't find one thing i like i'm sure you've heard that before what's the response yeah, there 100%. well first of all you're not doing that you're not sending them love because you've found anything about them that you like it's, it has really nothing to do with them so you have to get clear that you're sending love to them so that you free your 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 own state of mind from them what really happens when we fall into what we call the maze the maze is just a state of mind where you're going over arguments over and over and over again in your mind and you can't and you hate them you're really angry at them and you can't let go of the anger nothing good can happen in the maze and I'm not just saying nothing good can happen in the in the relationship when you're in the maze. That's certainly true. But the truth is, when you're in the maze, it's also really difficult to get your own work done. It's difficult for you to relate to your kids. It's difficult for you to relate to. It's hard to actually do anything when you're in the maze about someone because it's so preoccupying. It just takes over your mind. So you're, the incentive here is I got to free myself from the maze I have to get to the point where I'm not thinking about the person 24-7, and then I can decide what to do and you know where to allocate my, my resources. That's what active love is for. It's designed to pull you out of the maze. I love the distinction that it's more for you than it is for them. I think that's that's an important that's an important piece. The quote, I'm a big quote guy, if you can't tell, the quote from that chapter that I really enjoyed was everyone in your life is imperfect, either because of something they've done in the past or something they can't change in the present. Fixating on these things destroys relationships. Such a great reminder. I love it. Um, let's go to grateful flow. And, and we talk about we talk about gratitude and the importance of gratitude. I like to, you know, do a gratitude journal. I think I think people in, in this day and age, we're we know that gratitude is something that's supposed to help us uh, and will help us uh, improve our overall happiness. But it seems that there's still a little bit of a gap. We like to still focus on uh, the negative things in our life. We have this negativity bias. Call it what you want. Uh, talk to me a little bit about grateful flow. How is it different? Uh, what is different? Let's just open it up, and we'll continue what we're doing here and dive deeper with whatever kind of comes out. Yeah, the grateful flow ultimately is a tool that enables you to feel and experience what we call the source. You could call it God, you can call it the universe, you can call it whatever you want. I don't really care. And we don't try to convince anybody of anything. But there is something out there giving us good things in life. And they're not always obvious. You know, the fact that our bodies work as well as they are and as with as much complexity as, as they have is kind of a crazy gift. Um, the health of your children, just a million things that the universe gives to you without you asking for it um, and, and without expecting any thanks for it. Um, and those things should be acknowledged if only because when you acknowledge them, you feel better and you're nicer to the people around you. I mean, I hate to just be really blunt about it, but most people walk around in a pretty gnarly state of resentment and as a result of that, they're not really good to the people around them. When you use the grateful flow regularly, those resentments clear out and you're just better to everyone around you. You also do a better job, you know, what you're doing. So it's essentially a kind of mind clearing exercise where you can let the goodness in. And then because of the goodness, you feel like, 
okay, I could give more to this person. I could give more to that person. I, you know, I, everything just works better. It's like clearing out the pipes in an engine, you know, so it just functions much better. I love that idea. And I, I love the idea that you said in the book about discipline your mind to always see the amazing things in life. I like the words there. Discipline your mind to always see the amazing things in life. So discipline to me, it's like, it's like it, it puts yourself in a state where you're consistently doing this. And I think one great way, one really easy way is to have a gratitude journal or a gratitude walk. John Gordon talks about every morning he goes on a walk for 20 minutes, comes up with three things that he's grateful for. I think if we're talking about creating a discipline or a practice, one of the easiest ways to do that, this isn't, this isn't um, difficult stuff, I don't think. Just consider, what are you most grateful for? And then I think what you'll find, because I've done this before, is that the longer you do this, the more the, the ideas you're grateful for, they start to get a little bit smaller, a little bit, a little bit right. smaller. Hey, man, I'm just grateful that I can walk on this walk. I'm grateful right. the sun is out. I mean, it's just really little things. If you try to challenge yourself like I did every day, I try to come up with something different, right? And it's yeah. just crazy how many things come up where you're like, I hadn't even thought about that before. And it's yes. just, there's, you know, there's a reason why the rest of the day is such a great day because you're starting your day with, you know, what are the three things that you're grateful for? It sounds so simple. People listening, they're like, yeah, I get it. I mean, it's just, you, you really think that's going to change? Yeah. If you discipline yeah. your mind to do that every single day, you start stacking up those thoughts, stacking up those pages, stacking up those uh, sentences you're writing. Yeah, you're damn right. It's going to start changing how you feel. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, there's only one thing I would add to that, which is, um, to me, it's not enough to just think or write down the things that you're grateful for. Okay. What we want to do is go one step further and actually feel the gratitude. Mm. So talk me, this talk can, about that. Well, in other words, it can become a kind of um, peremptory exercise to just write down, you know, glad my wife is healthy. I'm grateful I have a house, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can go through that without ever actually feeling grateful, mm. without feeling that heart swelling, melting feeling that you really that, that that really is what comprises gratefulness gratefulness is is an emotion i mean it's more than an emotion but it's it's an emotion that more than any other allows you to melt into the whole w-h-o-l-e you know something greater than yourself it allows you to experience the universe as a place that actually wants you to succeed it's actually giving you things actively and I want the person to have that experience. I don't want them just to recite the particular things that they're grateful for. Because if they only do that, they're missing this whole experience of, holy shit, there's something out there that's really supporting me, really wants me to succeed, that's really on my side, you know, kind of thing. A person that's experiencing that every day is going to, there's almost like no, nothing to stop them, you know? How do you tap? So how do you tap into, how do you tap in? I mean, I'm, I'm over here like, dude, I want to feel that. So that's, I mean, that, that's why you use the word flow, I think as well, because we all know kind yes. of what that flow state is. So, so how do we tap into, I think there's, that's a great distinction because right now writing it down is, is a good step. It's not a bad step, but how can we get to a great step? What are what your I strategies? Do, yeah. It's not a slam dunk. I think it has to be practiced a lot, but what I do is I recite the thing that I'm grateful for. I'm grateful. My, son is coming to visit for dinner tonight, you know, kind of thing. 
but I don't stop there. I actually try to feel, well, how does it feel that he's coming over for dinner? Well, I love him so much. And I don't get to see him that often. And God, it's going to be so nice to see him. So very quickly, I'm feeling joy. I'm feeling sense cool. of satisfaction. I'm feeling mm -hmm. a sense of like, yeah, I'm lucky. I'm really lucky. Know, mm. kind of thing yeah. those are those so it's it's mostly like an imaginal exercise if you can imagine the thing that you're grateful for you'll start to feel the gratefulness and then it's not just theoretical it's real mm. i love that um all right so the last one is jeopardy time is ticking i like this idea what i really like about it is because i i, I use this sometimes with my teaching too is this idea of taking yourself to the end of your life and this has been brought up several times over the last five years and something i challenge even uh, high school kids that i work with when we come up one of the first things we do is is when we get together we work on what's called an mvp process your mission, your vision, and your principles. Who are you? You know, what, what, do you, what do you stand for? And on the mission question, one of the things I ask Barry is I get real serious and I say, hey, if you were to uh, inscribe you into your gravestone, you got to create your own gravestone. What are the things that you would want set on there? What are the characteristics you want? How do you want to be remembered when you leave? And I think there's a little bit of a similarity to kind of what we're talking about a little bit here about taking yourself into the future. So we talk about jeopardy, time is ticking and use the end of your life, not as a fear, right? Not as a fear of death, but, but how can we almost use it as, I like to say, how can we use it as motivation? And that's exactly. when you kind of talk about willpower a little bit. So talk to me about jeopardy, time is ticking. Yeah. So you visualize your deathbed self, meaning you on your deathbed, you've got you know, a minute or two or three until you're going to die. You're at the end of your life. That self knows the importance of you taking action now in your life. And it knows it better than you do because it has no time left. So the, the purpose of invoking the deathbed self is to get from him a sense of like, come on, do it, do it now. I don't have any time left. You do. Do use that time, you know, kind of thing. Whatever words you want to put to it, the deathbed self is going to provide you with that sense of urgency that comes when you're on the face, when you're on the edge of death, you know, kind of thing. And so what you do is you visualize the deathbed self pointing at you, saying, you know, take action, and that's it. Then you take action. Um, but it's a great way to 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 get yourself to take action. It really provides you with the most powerful motivation which is hey your time is limited you don't want to you don't want to look back from your deathbed and feel like you fucking wasted all of your time here that you didn't accomplish the things that you wanted to accomplish or that you didn't tell people the things you wanted to tell them you know while you were alive that's powerful. I use it all the time as it's something that's motivating. Sometimes too, I'll use it in, in micro doses. And what I mean by that is I'll think about what am I going to be thinking about when I put my head on the pillow tonight, Barry? You know, mm -hmm. what would that person want me to do right now? Right. And, and sometimes that can be a little bit, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the middle of something that's, that's uh, challenging or I want to give up right now, I, I put myself in that future state. So I think sometimes it, it can work well, even from a day-to-day -day basis or, or what's that yes. person on Sunday going to gonna think about right now? I mean, it, it's all a similar idea per se, but if the death thing scares you a little bit, maybe think about, Hey, a week from now, what, what is that person going to say about me right now? And, and to yes. me, that's been a, that's been a huge unlock for me in, in my productivity. Yes. Yes. That's a great idea. I agree with that. I would, I would also point out that the deathbed self 
is really just another version of the shadow. So it's just a part of us we don't want to look at, but that has enormous power and motivation buried inside of it. And so when you look at it and it says with authority, hey, dude, I only have five minutes left. So come on, get busy, do more. I want to have a satisfying death, not, not one filled with regret, you know, kind of thing. It's going to hit you with a lot of power. Gary, I want to finish our conversation with probably the biggest question of all. I'm so excited to hear your answer for this. You've been a, a therapist for many, many years, and you've seen thousands of patients, and you've written books, and you're one of the best in, on the planet in this business. I'm just curious on what's, what's the lesson? What's one lesson, call it the number one lesson, that you've learned being a therapist the last couple of decades? What's one piece of advice that you would want to give to people, knowing what you know now? that you'd want to give to people, if you could just echo it, maybe it's something you echo a lot in your practice or just a, a constant theme or something, just to my listeners, if you could just shout to them, hey, this is what I've learned. What would that lesson be? What's the piece of advice? Hmm. There's so many. I don't know if I can reduce it down to one. But the one that comes to mind, you know, just immediately is um, just bring more heart to life. You know, most of us, most of us do the opposite. Truth be told, we we want to protect ourselves, so we don't really reveal what we're feeling to people, or how much they affect us, or or how much, or we don't reveal how much we love what we're doing. You know, kind of thing. And I just think that if we all brought more heart to life, meaning just really revealed vulnerably what we feel about things, enthusiasms, you know, et cetera. Um, we would enliven the world in a way that it really needs. And we would be able to reduce significantly the amount of misunderstanding and violence that, you know, that we, we unfortunately have to live with. So yeah, that would be it. That's phenomenal advice. That's a great place to end it. That could be a podcast, maybe a book of its own. Barry, thank you for taking the time today. This was a this was tremendous, man. So much fun. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of wisdom in this in this hour here. How can my listeners best support you? Oh gosh, I think the best way to support me is to go to our website, which is thetoolsbook.com and sign up for the in-person workshops that we're giving buy the webinars that are on sale. They're all relatively inexpensive. Um, just peruse what's there because you'll find more material there than I could possibly cover in a, you know, in a, in a um, short podcast. Yeah, that would be it. Awesome. Barry, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks a lot, DJ. 